uh, we want to continue our study this morning, uh, looking at the Baptist Essentials, fifth class in this series of six, and this morning we want to look at theology of the church, congregationalism, um, and pastoral leadership. And uh, as with other classes in this series, we need to understand why this topic is important, because I'm not sure if... Um, you know, this came up really in our conversations in the last week, right? We don't normally just t- start talking about congregationalism or, or pastoral leadership. But I think if we understand why this topic is important, why it's so critical that we understand it properly, then it will help us um, to see kind of the structure of the church and how God works to accomplish His purposes through the church. So let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll look into the material today and into the Word of God. Father, we pray that you would occupy our lowly hearts and own them all and reign supreme over us. Lord, um, submit, help, help us to submit every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, and Lord, we pray that, that in your power, um, through your Spirit, that you would strengthen our minds and renew us through the, um, the understanding that comes through your Word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me begin with the question here that you see at the top of your handout. Um, Suppose you don't hold an office in our church, then here's the question. Why is it important to understand what leadership model the Bible prescribes for the local church? What's so important about understanding the leadership model that the Bible prescribes? Any ideas? Okay, because we want to make sure that the structure of our church matches up with what the Bible says. Any other ideas? It determines who has the authority in the church. Okay, so when it comes to how to make decisions and 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 um, and who's going to make the decisions, then that that helps, right? Or it actually helps you as an individual believer. For example, in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, it tells us that that you can actually help your leaders rule well. And the way that you do that is by obeying them, right? Obey your leaders and, and let them do this with joy and not with grief because that would be unprofitable for you, right? So it, it would be better for you if, if you helped them lead well. And the way that you do that is by, by following leadership, obviously, um, as that's consistent with the Scripture. Uh, another reason, in addition to these that have been mentioned, is that, that we're in a Baptist church. And so we all recognize that a church's membership has inherent decision-making authority. That, and we'll talk about this. When it comes to congregationalism, each individual has a responsibility to, to guard the, the truth of God's Word and to, to, um, to, to help define the lines of who's in and who's out. So let me give you an outline for the rest of our time together. First, we're going to start with the congregation's authority, and that's because under Christ, the congregation's authority is the most basic level of authority in a local church that we see in Scripture. Second, we'll look at the authority of pastors, or in other words, elders, and in that sense, we're placing the authority of pastors inside the authority of the congregation, um, since pastoral authority helps to... to um, to equip the congregation to, to accomplish its purposes well. And then finally, we'll look at how they relate together. How does congregationalism relate with pastoral leadership? So first, the authority of the congregation. For a lot of people, congregationalism can be a scary word if they even know what it means. But, but in our church settings, we generally have some idea of what it is, and we might see it as a negative thing because then we think, okay, if a con- congregationalism means congregational authority, then that means that, that the individual members have to, at a business meeting, decide what kind of pencils we're going to buy. You know, we, we get down to all the nitty-gritty little details of the church, and, and we need to decide all of that as a whole. And, and frankly, there are many churches that border on operating in that way, right? They, 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 you have all these arguments over colors of carpets and, and all sorts of things that are 
not um, not central to the purpose of the church, and and then you have in some cases splits that happen as a result of these things. And so we think of in the idea of congregationalism, we might not uh, have a good impression about it. But the question is, what does the Bible say about this idea? Not what is our experience with it, but what does the Bible say about it? And here's the big idea I want you to get this morning. The Bible teaches that church membership is an office. That is, it's a job. It's a job that each church member has to guard the what and the who of the gospel. Now, I'm going to have to prove that to you, but but what I'm suggesting this morning is that church congregationalism, church membership is a job. And, And our responsibility as members, as a congregation, is to guard the what and the who of the gospel. So it's the whole church's job to answer the questions the questions, is this a true confession of faith? Is what this person is saying about their confession of faith, is that true? Is that consistent with the Scriptures? And is this person a true confessor? Right? They may make a true confession. Everything they say is right about what they believe about the Gospel, but does their life match up with what a true confessor looks like? That's our job as a congregation. The what... What is the true confession? And the who? Who is the true confessor? That is at the heart of what congregationalism is. So in order to see this, that church membership is a job, it's an office, then we need to, to look at a few things first. First, number one, there are different kinds of authority in the church. People often treat authority... In, in a lot of cases in our society and in various different structures in our society as an either-or. Either this person has authority or that person has authority. Or we could say it in the, in the church. Either the pastor has authority or the congregation has, has authority. And in many places in life that's true, that, that it is an either-or type of thing. But that's not the case in the church. The fact is that both the congregation and the pastor have authority but they're two different kinds of authority. Okay, so the congregation has a type of authority, a kind of authority, and the, the pastor has a kind of authority. And Jesus holds us responsible for both of those, the congregation and the pastor. So they're different kinds. You need to recognize that, first of all, in order to see that church membership is an office or a job. Secondly, the authority of the keys of the kingdom belong to the congregation as a whole. Let's turn back to Matthew 16 again. And, and see this because I want to, to make sure this is clear in your minds. Um, we looked at this in weeks two and three. And what Jesus is getting at here is two important things. And that is that, that Peter has a responsibility to understand what a true confession is and who is a true confessor. Look at verse... Verses 18 and 19, would someone read those for us? Okay, can you skip back up to verses 15 to 17? I, I should have had you read those earlier, but go ahead and read 15 to 17. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? By what Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He just said to him, Let the nation of Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. All right. So verses 15 to 17 show us what a, a true confession is. Who do people say that I am? Well, there are lots of ideas out there. Some people say Elijah. Some people say one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? Here's a true confession. What is a true confession? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus is God. That He is the Savior of the world. That's a true confession. Okay, so Jesus starts with that in verses 15 through 17. And then He moves to who a true confessor is. Now, we could say, well, Peter's a true confessor because he said it rightly, right? 
But here's what he's saying in verse verse 18. He says, upon you I'm going to build, or upon this rock, not upon you, but upon this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And then verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom so that whatever you bind on earth. In other words, whatever you determine to be a true confessor is going to be true of what is in heaven. At least that's the idea. That's the goal. So I want to make sure you get this. Whoever is holding these keys of the kingdom has heaven's authority not to make a Christian. Okay, that's where we can get mixed up here. Well, wait a second. Are we saying that the church actually grants salvation? No, that's the Catholic Church. Okay, we don't grant salvation. But instead, we declare who is a Christian. We make a declaration on heaven's behalf of who is a Christian. Now, how do we do that? Any ideas? Any, any type of structure that we have set up in our church that helps us to say this is a true confession and a true confessor? What do we do? Okay, so we have the membership process. Okay, so we're kind of having this accountability going on. What if I gave you this word? Ordinances. What are the ordinances at our church? And in any Baptist church, really? Communion and baptism. Here's a way that we say, on behalf of heaven, we are saying that you are a true Jesus follower. Okay? And then on the Lord's Supper, we're saying... Here's the boundaries of who can join with us. And based on your profession of faith and your baptism, you're joining into our church. We're saying that you are a true Jesus follower. We're making that declaration. Now, we're not granting the salvation. We're not the ones dispensing the grace, right? We're the ones making the declaration on behalf of heaven. And so, I've used the illustration before, which comes from Jonathan Lehman's book, um, on church membership, which I highly recommend, little blue book. It's like visiting the embassy if your passport expires or gets lost and you're out of the country. Right? You go to the embassy, and they don't make you a U.S. citizen. Right? What do they do for you? They declare that you are one. They have some means by which they can tell if you are a U.S. citizen. And then they give you a passport. They're saying, on behalf of the authority that we have from the Department of State, who's the one who actually grants the citizenship. We're saying that you are a citizen of the United States. Here's your passport. So what we're saying here at the church is, on behalf of heaven's authority, there's heaven, God, Jesus, is the one who grants us salvation. The church doesn't. But we're like the embassy, and we're saying, on behalf of heaven's authority, based on what we can tell from what you say and how you live, you are a citizen. Here's your passport. Welcome into our membership. And so, now, I, I've made a leap here that I've just kind of assumed something here because what Jesus is talking about is Peter. And I think, I think in this context, he's actually talking to all the apostles. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. So I think he's saying to all the apostles, you hold the keys of the kingdom. Now, I'm making a leap here to assume that we somehow now have the keys. Here's why I say that. Turn to Matthew 18 and verses 15 through 20. Do you remember that, that language that Paul is reading? That it was, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. You're going to find that same language here, which by implication, I think, means that, that now whoever Jesus is talking about here in verses 15 to 20 holds the keys to the kingdom. So would someone read verses 15 to 20? Verily I say unto you, whatsoever he shall bind on earth 
shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Okay, so Matthew 16, you have the apostles holding the keys. Then in Matthew 18, Jesus puts the keys into the hands of whom? In Matthew 18, verse... Verse... Um, right, where do you see that? I'm trying to find the verse. Okay, 17. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if you refuse to listen to them, then let it be, let them be to a Gentile or a tax collector and whatever you bind on earth. So now he's saying the keys go to the apostles. And it makes sense because the apostles are the ones who are kind of laying the foundation of the church. So now it is that when a man is, is unrepentant of serious sin, Jesus is calling not the apostles to act, but the church. And he uses the same language that he uses in Matthew 16. He uses it here in verse 18, Matthew 18, 18. The binding and loosing. And do you notice there's no mention of apostles, no mention of pastors or elders here? The final court of the appeal, when it comes to who a true confessor is and what a, or what a true confession is and who a true confessor is, is the local church. The final court of appeal is the local church. The local church, the congregation, church membership has heaven's authority to declare, not to grant, but to declare who is in and who is out. The local church has the authority to guard the what and the who of the gospel. Or we could say it this way, the local church holds the keys to Christ's future kingdom. Who's allowed to come in and who's not. So, when we think of congregationalism, we might think of little decisions that we're bringing up at business meetings and all sorts of conversation that goes around that. But it's not really about putting a microphone in the aisle at a business meeting and say, hey, what kind of things should we change in the church? Or let's talk about some of these things that you're disgruntled about. No, it's what Jesus is talking about. It's about protecting and proclaiming the gospel, isn't it? So that when we as a congregation baptize someone, we're doing that on the authority of the congregation. And we're saying, we believe that you have a right confession and you are a true confessor. And that responsibility is matched by, by this authority in verses 19 and 20, right? Whenever two or three are gathered in my, my name. It's not talking about a prayer meeting there. It's talking about the authority that the local church has, right? If we you think about this in context, it's the, the authority that the local church has guard the gospel so think about it this way you might be thinking how can the church possibly have that much authority to declare what a true confession is and who a true confessor is think about it this way how is it possible for a church to formally bear Jesus name before the nation Right? Jesus says go into all the world and make disciples you're my representative you're my as Paul calls it ambassador how could we possibly do that and yet at the same time have our hands tied when it comes to protecting christ's name right we see someone come in who's clearly a false professor or has a false confession if we can't do anything about that right if we if if we can't if we have no ability to declare whether that person's in or out then how really can we bear christ's name what do we have to do? We have to let everybody in. Whoever wants to come in, come in. And now, how do we reflect who Jesus is on the earth, right? Does that make sense? So if we're going to represent Christ, we, we also have to have some kind of derived authority from him to be able to determine who is a true confessor and what is a right confession. So that's why congregational authority is so important 
And I would suggest to you that, that thirdly, church membership, therefore, is an office or a job. We have responsibility. Before we get into this, do you have any questions or comments on what, what we've looked at so far? All right, silence is agreement. Not necessarily, but keep thinking through that. And if you have questions, we will still have some time later to ask those. All right, but, but I think that's the foundation for, for what we have as a responsibility. Otherwise, what are we here for? I mean, why do we even go through a process? Why have a process? Let's just open up the doors, let anybody in, and let them stay in as long as they want. If we're going to represent Christ, then let's represent Christ. Let's grant, not, not grant, but let's, let's give them the passport that reflects their true citizenship. If we're going to represent Christ, and that's what we're supposed to do. So job responsibility number one. Help preserve the gospel. Help preserve the gospel. Galatians 1 is where Paul says, listen, if someone comes to you with another gospel other than the one that I have given to you or the one that you've heard from the apostles, then let that one be accursed. So what he's saying there is to the Galatian believers, to the congregation, he's saying you have a responsibility to guard the gospel, guard it from false teaching. So as you join the church, you should recognize that, listen, I as an ordinary member of this church and a baptized Christian now am responsible for protecting and preserving the gospel. The way Lehman puts it in his book is, you know, once we go to the embassy, they, they declare on behalf of the Department of State that we are a citizen. They give us the passport that was expired or lost or whatever. And now what happens when, when we receive that passport? We actually come on to the other side of the counter, and now we're taking the next person in line. We, together with the rest of these embassy workers, are now declaring whether these people are legitimate or not. And that's what we ought to do when we come into membership of the church, not just kind of sit back, you know, put our feet up and, you know, feed me or, you know, take care of my needs. No, now we're the, the watchdogs, kind of, protecting the gospel. And that's why Paul calls on the congregation to clean up false teaching. And you need to guard the gospel. So I hope that every church that you're a part of in your life, that, that you are involved in a church that has that authority because that is biblically granted. And I told the story before, but I don't think I'll stop reminding you about the story of my aunt and uncle's church um, where they had they decided to give up the congregational authority. The church decided to do this, to give up congregational authority and turn it into an elder rule situation. You know, elder rule, what that means is they determine who the elders are going to be, so they're self-perpetuating. The congregation doesn't make any choices on that. They determine how the budget's going to, to go. They determine who's in, who comes in the church and who leaves. The congregation has no say in anything, no votes at all. Okay, so that's what I'm saying when I say elder rule. What, what I'm not saying is elder-led. There's a difference between that. There are churches that are rightly set up as elder-led congregationally ruled. That's how our church would be set up. Okay, but elder-led just means there may be more than one elder and, and they still have the responsibility to the congregation. The congregation still votes. But at their church, what they decided to do, in their, they changed their constitution and decided to give up the, the congregational authority by the leadership of the elders to the elders. So they had three elders. One of the elders got the other elder to come on his side and go against the main pastor who was a faithful man preaching the gospel seemed like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing and this guy tried to divide the church or bring them to his side so that he could kind of take over and push this guy out. This went on for years. And, and this guy, the, the, the main pastor, the senior pastor, um, lost a lot of weight. People were wondering what's going on. He didn't tell anybody in the congregation what was going on. When he finally told them, they're like, we can't do anything about it. We can't help you. We don't have any authority, right? Because we've given up that authority to the elders and our hands are tied. We can't pull it back from them. They would have to make that decision. 
Um, turns out the story ended fine, although I think their structure still messed up. Um, the the two guys ended up leaving, and they brought on some new elders. There's still elder rule, which I think will create problems down the road. But um, so so in one sense it turned out well, but in another sense, um, they brought that upon themselves. The congregation, I think there's blame plenty of blame to press around, but but the congregation brought that upon themselves when they passed over all their authority, which was God-given authority, to the elders. So we need to we need to make sure that we have that. That's what I'm saying. Whenever, whatever church you go to, hey, whatever this happens all the time. By the way, this is kind of the new wave of churches that they kind of you know what we'll take care of the decisions and and we just leave you out of it because you know it's just too much of a hassle. And, and by the way, it is it is work on the part of the leaders to have to include the congregation in a lot of these decisions, right? It'd be much more if we want to go for efficiency. Let's just make it elder rule. But let's go for biblical, and it, it will be less efficient. But, but it's 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 in line with what the scriptures prescribe, and I would say demand. Responsibility number two, job number two, help affirm gospel citizens. So we're we're working to preserve the gospel, and we're also working to affirm as a congregation. Every member of the church is responsible for protecting and preserving the gospel by affirming and by implication, disaffirming gospel citizens. So like we saw a few weeks ago, this plays out in 1 Corinthians 5. Remember with the immoral brother, you need to remove him from your midst. Why haven't you done it? I've already, in my mind, he should be gone by now. Matthew 18, same idea, right? If, If they fail to repent after individual, two or three, and the church, then remove them from the church. And it's the congregation that, that is to act to clear up who represents Jesus to the world. So when a pastor says to his church members, hey, it's my job to receive members, it's my job to discipline, it's my job to guard the gospel, and so you all sit down, then that pastor has actually weakened what your responsibility is, what your job is. He's actually taken something that belongs to you and has promoted in you complacency and nominalism. Which is, sounds a lot like what happened to the church from 8300 to 8500. Right? When it was, it was kind of the government, con- uh, the, uh, the state-run churches type of thing. And you all just sit down. We'll decide what's, what the church needs and so on. And so that's why here at Ambassador we take membership very seriously just that we want you to know who's joining we want you to sense that you have the authority that scripture gives you otherwise we've effectively fired you from your responsibility these two right here and taken it over responsibilities that jesus has assigned to you now that practically that means that 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 when you have opportunity to elect godly or Let's, let's say it this way. When you have an ele- opportunity to elect leaders, whether pastor or deacon, make sure you elect godly ones. Because they're kind of the front door. They're kind of the, the desk people when it comes to the right issuing the passports. They're the ones who are actually having the conversation. We're not going to have a membership interview where uh, membership candidates come and sit before the whole congregation. Okay, that's just not practical. So what you've done and what we've set up in our Constitution is that, and I think this is completely appropriate, is we're going to elect godly members, godly leaders, who are going to take on this process, but we're still going to have the final vote. So that if we're sitting in the congregation, we know something about that person, right? We know that they have a false confession or they, they are a false confessor, and we still have a vote, right? Obviously, there's a better way to handle that than, than at the final vote. Um, if we know that in advance, then we need to talk to myself or one of the deacons and make sure that that's clear before it gets to a vote. But um, because of that point, it may be, may be too late. But, but that's the way that our structure is set up. I think that's completely appropriate and biblical. Number four, the church has authority and discipline and membership, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. 
Uh, probably should have switched those there. Um, but, but same idea, really. Discipline and membership. And then doctrine and leadership, Galatians 1. And those are the things that we primarily vote on. So what, it, what does my membership really do? What do I really have responsibility for? Here they are. Authority and discipline. Membership. Doctrine, what we believe and and who our leaders are. Now, what we believe, we're not we're not going sitting around the table and saying, okay, let's talk about this doctrine now. Let's let's span this out. But but really, when we come into church, I don't know if you thought about it this way, but when we come into a church, when you agree to join our church, you're saying, I agree to the statement of your faith, your statement of faith. I'm agreeing to Ambassador's statement of faith. And so, in that sense, you're affirming what we believe, what we have believed for 77 years. And so in that sense, you have authority in that way. As a matter of wisdom, we ask the church also to affirm the annual budget as a whole, so in addition to these four things. And I think the reason we do that is so that you recognize the direction of our church, right? Because how we spend our money is a good determiner of where we're going and what we're doing, right? So that's why we... the congregation that's why we as a congregation join in that process of affirming the church budget or disaffirming it so this has relevance far beyond formal voting authority you might think well okay so i have authority that's basically used what two times a year two business meetings and then maybe a couple times when people join or or are disciplined out but but if we're to exercise this responsibility we can't just wait to those special times when we have the opportunity to say yay or nay. Instead, we need to make sure that we, first of all, know what the gospel is, don't we? So that we can see what a true confession is and who a true confessor is. And we also need to be willing to be mutually accountable. This is something I talk about a lot and and I, I will continue to do so. That we need to to engage in mutual accountability. That is, we need to enter into the lives of others, not in a, a creepy way or anything like that, but, but we need to enter into the lives of others, uh, develop a relationship with people so that we can see how consistent, not, not as a way like I'm going to be a tattletale or I'm, I'm looking for it so that I can just, oh, I'm going to tell the leaders about this so they can be removed. Not that idea, but, but that we should know some people closely and then allow ourselves to be known by them. And I think that responsibility of mutual accountability flows directly out of this job description of us, which is to guard the gospel. If we don't know each other, let's just say that we did an e-church, okay, a virtual church. We all sit at our homes and, and we just watch you know, some music and, and then watch somebody preach. We never interact with anybody. Is there any way we can really guard the gospel of that e-church? No. We actually need to be involved in the lives of others. And so that's why a culture of discipling and mutual accountability, grace, honesty ought to be normal in our church. So that when a friend is struggling spiritually, the goal is not to, okay, we need to make sure we have all the, the right people in and out. Oh, I see, I see a huge flaw. Get out. No, the goal is actually to keep them in. Right? We want to. If we see the flaw, we want to say, "Okay, we're going to come and see what we can do to come and, and meet that need, help them, and and right, save them from the flames," as Jude says. Or you who are spiritual, what does Paul say in Galatians? You who are spiritual, what? Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, gentleness. Right. So that's the goal. We want to make sure that they're continuing to hold on to their passport. And that means that, that we need to, to know one another. We need to, we need to work together in that regard. We can't know every single person in the church um, in, in the same level as, as we do everyone else. So we need to know, at least know some people and make ourselves known to some people so that, so that we are working to mutually guard the gospel. So that means when a friend is struggling spiritually, it's like Matthew 18 says right here, 
your job is not to go and tell the pastor. Okay? That's not the primary way in which you help them. Again, I, I, I think sometimes our view of, of um, compensation affects how we do church. So because we compensate the pastor monetarily, then, then whenever there's a struggle, we need to go to the pastor because he's kind of the paid professional that needs to handle this. And that way I can just kind of stay out of it. Um, but, but, but if your job is to guard the gospel, and if Jesus says, if someone sins, you see a sinning brother, what do you do? You go to him. You go to him. You, individual member, who has a hold of that keys, the hold of the, those keys, but the rest of the congregation, you go to them. Now, that's not saying that, you know, I, I don't, I, as, a, as the pastor, don't want to help you at all. Okay, I want to equip you. I want to encourage you. Sometimes walk alongside of you. But ultimately, care for one another is a job of the members together. And just to be clear, I'm thankful for how I have witnessed you handle discipleship and matters of sin and discipline so that you do regularly allow me to do my job with joy and not with grief. Hebrews 13, 17. All right, there's a lot there. So before we get to the authority of pastors, pastoral authority, any questions? All right, we're going to have to hustle because we've still got two more questions we've got to cover. So if that's the authority of the congregation, how does the authority of the pastor fit inside of it? Well, remember I said there are two kinds of authority. Okay, So don't think either or. The church has the authority of the keys... The pastor has the the authority of teaching and oversight. And we don't have time to look at all these texts, but let me just give you a couple. Acts 20, 28. Paul says, You are the the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So sometimes we think with our vote as a congregation, we actually make them a pastor. We're the ones who give them the authority, and we can take it away at any time. Well, actually, the authority resides in the office. You simply choose the person to the office. Once they have that office, they get the authority. It's a small distinction, but very important. The Holy Spirit's the one who gives the authority. Just like He gives it to you. He gives the authority to the pastor to, to teach and to have oversight. Titus 1, verse 9, An elder must exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We'll look at that in two Wednesdays from now, so I'll leave that there. And then... In Hebrews 13:17, I already mentioned, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And that means that other than in extraordinary circumstances, the pastor uses his authority of teaching and oversight to lead the church to be able to use the keys. Okay, so if we're back to the passport illustration. Okay, if your responsibility is to stand at the desk as a congregation and and Grant a passport, which is declaring whether they're in or out on the basis of heaven's authority, then my job is to help equip you in that. So I would be like, um, I would be like the one who gets all the information from the Department of State and says, hey, here's how we're going to evaluate these people. Okay, so let me, let me help you in this. And, and um, again, I don't have the final authority. Christ does. But, but my job is to lead and equip in, in how we're going to do this. So the congregation, in other words, cannot wisely determine the what and who of the gospel. They can't wisely fulfill their job responsibilities unless they have gospel teachers who are explaining to them the truth of the scriptures and giving oversight. So the congregation, you have, you have to do your job, but you need pastors to help lead you there. And if you didn't, then why did Jesus appoint them? in churches, right? Why did he have the apostles appoint pastors in churches if you didn't need one? So so I think as a congregation we do need one. Obviously, that's why I'm here. Okay. How do we do this? Turn to Acts six. How do pastors do this? We can break their responsibilities down into a few categories. And here, just to be clear, this is the establishment of the first deacons. 
and it was when the apostles were leading the church. But I think by extension and by the, the rest of the description that we see throughout the epistles, that this would be consistent with what pastors have as their responsibility as well. Number one, the ministry of the word. The first responsibility way that they carry out this leading and equipping is by the ministry of the word. So you have this situation going on where there's a challenge between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews. And so verse 2, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve table. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom who may be put in charge of this. But notice, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the, the apostles gather the congregation and say, listen, it's not a good thing for us to neglect the word. It's not good for us to do that. Now, this is not an unimportant situation. We think that the widows should be cared for. And we don't like to see this conflict going on, so let's see this settled. But we have another responsibility. So each, right, the Holy Spirit gives to each gifts for the purpose of serving the church so we're saying we have certain gifts the apostles are saying and i think by extension pastors have a specific gift that they give to the church and that is the ministry of the word secondly the ministry of prayer you see that also in verse four actually listed first but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word so when i think of administrative tasks tasks that need to be done around the church i would love to see them done i would love to do them but but i often tell our deacons i can't do them okay because i have a more important responsibility which is prayer and the ministry of the word i'm going to give myself to those things primarily now i still have responsibility of oversight that's what titus talks about but, but these are the two primary ones that I think about when I think about my job description. What is it that's going to fill up my week primarily? It's going to be prayer and the ministry of the Word. So let me just give you a, just a point of application here for you. You know from experience how, for you, your best intentions for praying often get sidetracked or sidelined because of something that seems more important, some crisis that comes up or whatever because of the busyness of life. Can I just tell you that, that, that I am not immune from those same kinds of things as you when you go to pray? Same kinds of temptations and pressures that are pulling you away from prayer are pulling me away from prayer. So when you pray for me, one of the ways that you can pray for me is by praying that I will pray. That's one of my responsibilities. So you can be like Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms so that the battle can be won. Thirdly, the ministry of gathering and protecting. One of the main condemnations that God gives against the bad shepherds of the Old Testament is that they scattered the flock. Whereas, by contrast, you have Jesus, the good shepherd, who knows his sheep, and his sheep follow his voice. And when anyone goes astray, what does Jesus do? He's not like the hired hand, right? You hire someone to come and guard the sheep, one of them goes away, oh, well, i still got 99 here. That's fine. That's not what the good shepherd does, right? He goes out after it. He will not lose one. And the job of the pastor is to be what you've probably heard of this, this word before, under-shepherd. Right? I'm not the chief shepherd. Christ is the chief, chief shepherd. He's the head of the body. I'm the under-shepherd. And, and I, I cannot be like a hired hand at the first sign of false teaching or the first sign of, you know, a, a, a false confession or a false confessor that, you know what, I'm out of here. I can't handle this anymore. I'm gone. Now, if I'm going to be a faithful under-shepherd, then I'm going to follow Paul's advice here in Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or under-shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And then 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. So pastors have a responsibility to minister the word, to pray, and then thirdly, we could just say it very simply, 
for oversight. So that doesn't mean that I have to micromanage everything, okay? But but I do need to have oversight over everything that's going on in this church. I need to have some kind of sense of direction, how it fits into our overall purpose, so that, 1 Peter 5.4, when the chief shepherd appears, I will receive the crown of glory. And because pastors are supposed to have the best interests of the members in mind, then members should be willing to submit and to follow their leaders, right? If you have a, a shepherd who's working on behalf of Christ, then why would you not want to follow him? Especially since he commanded you to in Hebrews 13:17. See, the, the members are supposed to follow the pastor's example, which is to follow Christ. I'm following Christ, follow me as I follow Christ. And, and, and part of the, my responsibility and oversight in ministry is to help equip you for every good work or equip you to do every good work. Uh, the Holy Spirit equips you for every good work. So how do these fit together? Uh, how does congregational authority... So we said there are two types. So how do they fit together? And um, we don't have time to go there, but Ephesians 4 is the passage to look at. And basically, what Paul is saying there is... I, the, Christ has given some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, so that we all attain to the, to the, um, the unity of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So, so the, the responsibility of the congregation is to come together and, and, and join up in the unity of faith. And the, the pastor's responsibility is to equip them to do that. So I don't do all the good deeds that can be done with our church. right? Praise God that I'm not responsible for all that. Um, but I help equip in that, at, that way, through the ministry of the Word and through prayer and through oversight. So... Um, so what does that mean for how we relate to one another? Pastor and congregation, just final two things here. You should not be a passive congregation. On the one hand, congregationalism does not see the congregation as merely rearing its head to exercise authority in, in only emergency situations. You know, that, there may be some of that, which I'll explain in a moment. But, but on the whole, gospel protection ought to be on, with the congregation a day-to-day work that you are working day after day to guard the gospel, being equipped by myself and any other pastors that we may have down the road. So think of two hypothetical churches for a moment. Church number one, the pastor is like a fitness instructor who's holding all the weights and the, and the jump rope, and he's doing all the exercise, and the church is just sitting there in lawn chairs watching him. Okay, that's one type of church. That would be a passive congregation, right? The other, church number two, is where the pastors are the pastor or pastors are like fitness instructors, but instead of just doing all the exercise, they're they're helping instruct. Right? So they're showing the congregation instead of sitting in the lawn chairs, you're up out of the lawn chairs, you're doing the exercise exercises with him. I'm helping equip. I'm helping give you the jump rope, the weight, make sure you know how to use them and so on. may not be the best example, illustration for me, but I'm not a fitness instructor by any means. Okay, so but we're not talking about weights and jump ropes. We're talking about guarding the what and the who of the gospel. So you're not sitting on your lawn chair saying, well, we're going to watch as pastor guards the what and the who of the gospel. No, you're going to watch as I help equip you to do that. You're going to engage in it. So not a passive congregation, not an all-powerful congregation. Do you see the two extremes? The congregation is not a representative democracy. Some people look at Baptist polity and think, or the way that our church is structured and say, okay, I get it. It's like the congregation is the people, the citizens, and the pastor is the president or the congress. And so we, as the congregation, vote them in to do what we want so that the pastor is kind of my representative for the, the, all of us. And, and there is some sense in which that's true, right? I hope that we all want to come to the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I hope that we all want to grow up in the knowledge 
and the love of God. And so in that sense, I am your representative in that way. But, but it, this is not like a, an American representative democracy. The congregation has the most basic authority under Christ, but the authority of the pastors is not given to them by the congregation. It's given by Christ. I already mentioned this, so I'll skip over that. So here's, here's the idea. You might be thinking, well, these seem like they might be at odds with each other. You have the authority of the congregation and the authority of the pastors. They're probably going to be button heads all the time. But here, here's the truth. 99.9% of the times, they're going to be together. That is that these two authorities are going to work together. Now, in extreme situations, the pastor is, is abusing his authority. And in that sense, the congregation needs to use its authority like an emergency break and say, no, this is not the true gospel. Okay, the, what you're teaching is false doctrine. And so the congregation very rightly needs to rise up. That's why it's so important that you maintain that authority. Don't give that up. Don't ever let a pastor come in here and say, I think we need to move to elder rule or you have no more authority. Don't ever let that happen because you may never get it back. So I would say that these two work together. They're not opposed to each other. All right, I had a quote from Charles Spurgeon I would have liked to read, but maybe maybe for next time. you have any quick comments or questions? Absolutely. Yep. So that's one of the tenets of um, Baptist structure. You know, if we you think about the acrostic that we often use, the first one is biblical authority. You know, we believe that the Bible is our authority, final authority on all of life. Now, obviously, the, the illustration I use is the Bible doesn't tell us the name of the next deacon we should choose or the name of the next pastor we should choose. So in that case, the congregation has the authority to make that choice. And we saw that next. Well, we didn't see it, but in Acts 6, um, you choose from among yourself seven men who are worthy of this office, who are men of the Spirit who are already, you know, fulfilling the responsibilities of, um, of serving the church. All right. Went over time, so let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for our heritage. Thank you that we are Baptist. We believe that that is the closest of all the churches to what your word prescribes. And we pray that you'd help us to maintain um, our responsibility to guard the gospel and to determine who is the true confessor and what is a right confession. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.